Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of issues, trends, and developments in future fuels and vehicles. I'm your host, Tammy Klein, Principal Consultant with Future Fuel Strategies, and I'm really excited to have with me today Erica Myers. So let me tell you a little bit about Erica before I welcome her to the program. Erica is with the Smart Electric Power Alliance, or SEPA. She joined in 2015, and she leads SEPA's transportation electrification research. She has 16 years of experience in the clean energy sector and specializes in the nexus between the grid, electric vehicles, and renewable energy. So she's right in the sweet spot. Erica currently serves on an electric vehicle steering committee for the U.S. Department of Energy and is an EV advisor for the National Energy Foundation, a nonprofit organization developing curriculum to increase EV literacy in K-12 schools. She was awarded the 2019 Public Utility Fortnightly Fortnightly Under 40 Award for her work on vehicle grid integration. Prior to joining SEPA, Erica worked as a consultant with ICF International, where she helped electric utilities and local governments develop EV readiness plans. Erica has a bachelor's degree from Clemson University and a master's degree from the University of South Carolina with a specialization in clean energy and climate science. Erica, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Tammy. Oh, it's great to have you. So I got the opportunity also to meet Erica, and I'm working with Erica on the Fuels Institute's Electric Vehicle Council, which I'm also chairing, so we can add that. <laughs> Add that to your <laughs> roster of, uh, of electric vehicle involvement. And we've been working together since February. So that's how I got to know Erica. So Erica, for the listeners, you know, as we sort of get into this, for the listeners who might not be familiar, can you talk about first what SEPA does and a little bit more about your role within SEPA? And can you talk about the kinds of issues and projects uh, you're working on for members? Absolutely. So the Smart Electric Power Alliance is a nonprofit organization, and we envision a carbon-free energy system by 2050. We're one of many entities around the world basically making this vision a reality, but our role is specifically helping the electric power industry with a smart transition to a clean and modern energy future. And we do this through education, research, standards development, and more broadly, collaboration across lots of different sectors. We focus on four major topic areas right now, including regulatory innovation, grid integration, utility business models, and then our fourth topic is transportation electrification, and that's what I focus on for SEPA. We have a really incredible opportunity to see the evolution of the transportation industry in real time. And this will fundamentally change the way that we move around our planet. We see that this transportation electrification transition will reduce the amount of carbon we emit into our atmosphere. And transportation, as you may know, is the number one carbon emitting segment in the economy at this time. So we see as well, uh, in addition to cleaning up the, the uh, air and, and uh, minimizing climate change, is also supporting clean energy deployment through things like vehicle grid integration. And uh, vehicle grid integration, for those who may not be familiar with that term, it includes everything from electric vehicle rates that encourage people to charge during off-peak hours, which could include like the nighttime or the middle of the day when there's a lot of solar. 
It can also be where a utility or a third-party aggregator will help the customer shift the load directly through load management. And then a lot of times people also see vehicle integration as vehicle to grid or vehicle to building or vehicle to home is another one where essentially you can leverage the battery in the car to provide grid services. And so what SEPA does is we work with lots of different industry players, especially in the utility and people who provide services to utilities to design programs and solution sets around these topic areas. So one of the things, so, uh, you know, as part of working together on the Electric Vehicle Council for the Fuels Institute, we're working on a big project assessing the all of the the legislation, the regulatory developments, incentives, and and I'm amazed that there really has been just in the last few years. I mean, there's just the evolution of you know supporting sort of framework, sort of legislation and regulation is is really happening out there. There are there are a lot of gaps, but I think it's just you know the technology and the interest has outpaced legislator and regulator's ability to to really kind of catch catch up, but I think that they will. But one thing that really surprised me is just how much utilities have done and are doing in such a little, you know, such a short time frame. So can you talk about what utilities are doing across the country on electrification and, and especially your members? And what are the mm-hmm. biggest issues they're grappling with right now as you see it? So from a high level, we see transportation electrification as a huge opportunity for utilities and something that they need to start preparing for today. So as you probably have seen, folks who are listening to this podcast have probably seen is industry forecasts predict EV adoption will increase from where we are today, which is in the U.S. is around one and a half million electric vehicles to somewhere over 20 million electric vehicles in the next 10 years. This will equate to uh, electricity consumption of about 11% increase annually by that point in time. So that's a huge amount of growth in electricity consumption. And we have fortunately already quite a bit of existing capacity in our system, but probably the bigger trick is going to figure out how do we get people to charge during more optimal times of the day or even over the course of a a year because there's changes in seasonal electricity consumption. And so we see three challenges utilities are facing related to these bigger picture issues. The first is distribution and transmission planning. We need to make sure we continue to provide robustable, affordable, and clean power to the new industry, the most efficient manner possible. So the challenge here is basically having adequate forecasting data to incorporate into utility system planning. The second biggest challenge is minimizing system impact. We want to make sure people don't charge their vehicles during what we call system peak. It's usually about 100 hours a year where everybody has their air conditioning turned on or their pumps are running and all these things that are, are causing what we call a system peak so that we can prevent unnecessary build-out of new generation and grid infrastructure. The third biggest challenge is defining the utility role. So utilities are inherently different from the traditional private sector because they are regulated monopolies. So they face a different set of regulations. The assets that they pay for out of the rate base, which is um, what all consumers are paying for as part of their electricity bill, 
those assets must be used and useful, meaning that they're filling an essential need to provide electricity. So we know utilities are essential as future fuel providers, but they may not be able to move as quickly to fill in market gaps for things like charging infrastructure, which is why partnerships are so essential. So SIPA is working with utilities and other EV stakeholders to develop best practices and help guide solutions to these and other EV challenges. So what role do you see utilities playing in the vehicle electrification space over the next 10 years? And again, you know, what are the biggest challenges and what are the biggest uh, opportunities for them? Yeah, I think the next decade is going to be really exciting for transportation electrification. We see utilities emerging as industry leaders, guiding investments in everything from consumer education to charging infrastructure deployment to vehicle grid integration opportunities. The biggest opportunity we see is electrification as a crucial step to reduce carbon emissions. Our generation mix will continue to get cleaner as utilities retire coal plants and invest in things like renewable energy and other sources of power. And the growing demand for power will help increase the scale and speed of this transition. So the average vehicle is parked roughly 95% of the time, which means that it has an incredible amount of charging flexibility. So if we could leverage and aggregate all of these EV batteries, we would have more than sufficient storage capacity to overcome some of those concerns about the intermittency of renewable energy. And essentially, these cars could become like solar and wind energy sponges, is, is the term I like to use. The biggest challenge is actually how to take advantage of this opportunity. So while it seems amazing on paper, we need to figure out how to unlock that storage potential in a way that doesn't impact people's use of their cars. People don't buy cars to help the grid. They use them to get around. And so we need to work with consumers to figure out what are the types of programs and offerings that would get them to alter their charging patterns and still meet their need at a basic level. We're at a crucial stage in our industry of deploying these vehicle grid integration programs and quickly figuring out what is the program design, the incentives, the communication architectures, and the technology solutions to actually do this. And I can't stress enough the need for robust partnerships to enable this future. So that's what I wanted to ask you about, you know, all of those things that you just mentioned. Where does the policy, you know, fit into that? And is that state level? Does it need to happen at the state level? Does it need to happen at the local level? Does it need to happen at the federal level? All of the above, or will mm-hmm. it just be done with, with partnership? How do you envision that working, working to sort of reach that that you talked about as the sort of the driving around, the, the wind and the solar and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the cars sort of mm-hmm. driving around as, as mini storage? Yeah, so I think that, the better option, and SIPA does not actually weigh in on policy or regulation. So this is my opinion personally. I think that having some nationwide direction would be really helpful at this stage so that we can have a more unified vision of what the future looks like. And I think that where we're lacking a little bit is the direction of the industry and especially around vehicle grid integration. Probably I'd say the, the number one policy discussions are happening around 
vehicle gun integration in California. And that needs to be more dispersed, though, obviously. We can't just all depend on California to come up with all the solutions. Uh, we need to collectively be involved in that discussion. And, and so I think a discussion at the federal level is appropriate. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So I spent some time recently, a couple of weeks ago. I just, I was curious. I wanted to see, you know, kind of follow the new Green Deal into what does the Biden plan say? What does the Trump plan say? You know, the House uh, Select Committee on the Climate Crisis just came out with a a 547-page <laughs> report. I was curious to see what they had to say for transport. So, I, you know, I looked at mm-hmm. these Republicans, and there was nothing, you know, for the minority committee on the House side, nothing uh, except a uh, press release. So, you know, the, the Biden plan and the, and the House Select Committee plan is, is really interesting because there is, what I th- thought was interesting is, first of all, there's a vision. Yeah. Visions are nice. <laughs> the vision, there's a direction, there's a strategy, and it's actually multi-pronged. So you have, you know, low carbon fuel standard on a national low carbon fuel standard on one side. There's a lot on encouraging electrification, but not just with like a ZEV target, you know, but there are fuel efficiency standard. There are various assorted incentives infrastructure is a part of that. It addresses medium and heavy duty, aviation, shipping. So I thought from that standpoint, it was it was re- really interesting. It was a unified national vision. And, you know, there really wasn't one. There's no platform <laughs> on the other side. I looked for the platform. There is no platform. So, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's very far reaching. Um, but it is a unified vision. And, and what struck me is that some of the things that you're uh, talking about, it's not like, you know, VGI um, or vehicle to, to grid integration was, you know, expressly mentioned, but it's clear that there's thinking around this, you know, what the, you know, the various stakeholder roles uh, will be in, in this, including utilities. So it's like one federal vision. And I think that we do, we need something <laughs> because we haven't had any sort of direction for years. The last energy bill was in 2007. And I'm not sure that was the most visionary thing that was ever put out there. Yeah. I mean, it's it's very unified. And, and actually, you know, in doing this research, I mean, that's the thing, this regulatory research is something that I really notice. It's very mm-hmm. patchworky. And when it's patchworky, you don't have the the regulatory certainty. And I'm sure that the utilities, you know, we talk about that with respect to fuel retailers, fuel providers, refiners, auto industry, but utilities need that just as much as <laughs> I'm sure as these other industries do. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the barrier I mentioned earlier on the utility role is one that there was some guidance at a federal level really help to minimize some of these these concerns, these fundamental concerns about how the utility should be involved at a fundamental level in the deployment of things like EV charging infrastructure. So I agree. I think you know you you've nailed it is I think that having a robust federal policy would be really, really beneficial at this stage. And actually, do you think that that is a reason or a, or a p- potential uh, contributing factor where you see different entities 
maybe wanting to get into the space, like, for example, maybe fuel retailers, you know, maybe they want to get into the space, Mm -hmm. but they're really not quite sure, you know, well, how do they fit in, you know, in the the commercial charging side, how do they fit in versus the utility? So everybody just kind of holds back. Do you think that that dynamic does happen out there in the market? And utilities as well. It's like, well, you know, we're not sure, really sure what our, our role is, or is it is it clear for them? But do you think that that's what kind of, in terms of investing, there's been a heck of a lot of investment in the yeah. infrastructure, but do you, do you see people kind of holding back because, yeah, there really is that lack of, of clarity or certainty? <laughs> yeah. So I think that that the word assume, if you assume it makes an ass out of you and me, I love that word because, <laughs> because I think that's where we're at in our industry is that we are assuming that somebody is picking up all the charging infrastructure needs and they're gonna they're gonna pick up the tab for that. You know, at the end of the day, the people who are gonna be left out is gonna be the consumer. And the consumer is right. gonna be wondering where where can I go to get my charge and, and this car is not gonna work for me now because I'm going to be, you know, I'm worried about range. I'm worried about getting stranded. And so ultimately, we're all going to not benefit from that lack of clarity because we're not going to be able to enable this transition that we absolutely need. Uh, And so I think that you're right. I think there's got to be some more discussions. We need some more partnerships between the industry more broadly. I'd love to see more partnerships between utilities and their fuel retailers. I, I think that there's a lot of opportunity between these industries to work collaboratively. People go to the gas station, and if they see a charger, they'll say, oh, I know exactly where to get a charge if I need it. And um, likewise, for utilities, I think that they would benefit from being able to deploy more charging infrastructure and, and getting consumers to feel more comfortable with that as well in the meantime. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and you can see that that is beginning to to happen. I think on um, what's coming to my mind is the EVgo partnership with Sheets in Virginia, which was, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's part of the the Volkswagen settlement. But that's really, yeah, yeah, really amazing. And it it is, it provides the experience to, you know, the consumer is used to having that that experience of, of, of pulling up so they can go in, they can get coffee, they can, you know, <laughs> do whatever, um, you know, they can use the, the Wi-Fi if it's, if it's available, the car is charging. And uh, yeah, it's really amazing. We're beginning to kind of see that um, a little bit. So, you know, one thing I wanted to know, and, you know, I am not, have not traditionally been on the utility side. So I've already joked with you offline about reading PSC and PUC orders is like, oh, wow, you know, this is a, this is next level. This is next level uh, interpretation here. And I'm, a, and I'm a lawyer by background. It's like, oh, these are interesting to parse. So I traditionally have not worked on the um, utility or, or power generation side. So, you know, as you see it, what kind of changes need to happen? You talked about it a little bit, but, but need to happen to support the grid as electric vehicles, you know, continue to, to scale up and not only for the light duty side, but also for the heavy duty side, because there's a lot happening there as well. And, and how are utilities beginning to, to, you know, you know, prepare for this? I mean, especially heavy, mm-hmm. heavy duty and the, de- the demands 
of charging for, you know, heavy-duty electric vehicles. Yeah. First, I want to just clarify that our grid is actually pretty amazing. And in many Mm -hmm. ways, it's designed to handle a rapid scale-up of this nature. But we know that there are particular charging technologies that may present shorter-term challenges. So, for example, as we move away from longer duration charging to potentially more of a gas station model where you could get a rapid charge, um, you know, in a matter of minutes, the traditional solutions that we have to provide power to those sites may not work in the time horizon that the utilities can accommodate. For example, if you're building a new manufacturing facility, typically as utilities have at least one or two years need time to provide that high-level power to that site while the facility is being constructed. But if you're talking about delivering that same amount of power demand, if not more, for a fleet at that site that can be delivered in a matter of months, then we're going to need to figure out how to provide the power in basically a fraction of that time. And that's where SIPA sees other distributed energy resources like battery storage or microgrids serving as a complementary technology that can reduce timeline delays, help users manage their bill costs, and provide additional resilience and reliability in the event of like a storm or a power outage. And so that's where uh, I think SIPA has a unique perspective compared to other EV organizations in our industry is that we are coming at this as you know, an organization that works on all these different grid technologies, and that we can see the problem set a little bit more holistically. And so that's, I think, another area that we're focusing on in 2021 is the opportunity of of putting on-site storage and microgrids in conjunction with things like fleet depots or fast-charging corridors. So... With all this said about utilities, their role in in the expansion of electric vehicle infrastructure, just more broadly, how do you see infrastructure evolving over, you know, the next 10 years? And how do you see the the market scaling up, especially kind of where we are right now? I mean, we are sort of in the midst of a a pandemic here. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing I'm kind of seeing from my side is it's not, you know, yes, it's, it's it's a challenge. Many of us are challenged in work, but on the other hand, I mean, you know, a lot of things are moving forward, especially in, in this space. So how do you see it evolving over the next 10 years or so, infrastructure and the, and the market in general? We've seen incredible growth in our industry over the last decade. So I'm really excited to see what happens in the coming decade as the market matures and we have bigger industry players entering the market. Uh, so I see some future trends that um, yeah, I, I'm personally excited about. The first is an increased convergence around charging standards. So you probably saw the Nissan Aria, which uh, Nissan has typically been using CHADMO connectors for fast charging. They're, they're actually moving their car to CCS, which is a, a more of an international standard. So that's, I think, an exciting trend. from just the charging infrastructure perspective, if we can get some uniformity around the the charging standards, I think that would help reduce cost for hardware and and ultimately software. A second trend we'll see is more utility programs for transportation, electrification, including some 
evolution of, of residential and commercial range design. And I'd like to see at some point something like a, an export tariff for vehicles to grid that will basically allow us to take advantage of EV batteries in the same way that we use stationary storage. And then the third trend I'd like to see is in conjunction with grid modernization deployments, industry players will be able to get real-time signals for power cost. And these real-time signals will help fleets and aggregators design more sophisticated charging load management systems. Eventually, we'll allow them to have bigger fuel savings. And so what that might look like is real-time price signals at the stations, the charging stations, similar to what we have for fuel retailers. You, you know, you see the, the price changing five, ten times a day. Something similar to that for consumers at DC fast charging locations. Wow. That is... Uh... <laughs> You know, that's, I mean, it's just, it's really amazing the evolution that you're talking about marrying, you know, technology and consumer demand and, and all of that. And and what I think is kind of amazing, I mean, we talked about lack of, of federal vision and yes, there are some, some state, you know, and local policies, but I think the U.S. market is kind of unique because it's not like there really is a giant policy signal um, right now. And all of this is happening despite that. It's really interesting because, you know, they say, you know, you, you can't get the market to lift off without policies, but yet people are investing millions and billions of dollars to make all of this happen. The utilities being a big piece of that. So it's, it's really, really interesting. I wouldn't say there's a lack of policy because if you look at what is happening globally, you know, there's, European countries that are saying that oh, internal combustion yeah. engines will be banned at some point in the future. And then there's states here in the U.S., like California and the other zero emission vehicle states that are, are requiring manufacturers to provide cleaner and cleaner non-internal combustion engine fuel sources for their cars that are sold in the state. And so there are market drivers that are driven largely yeah. by policy. And if you think about the vehicles are, are kind of a unique product because they're they're a global product. You know, you don't create cars just maybe for one state. <laughs> you know, you usually create a car for right. a lot of different applications and a lot of different places. And so I think that, that there's, you know, it, it's just different because manufacturers are responding to it. They also see the, the trends from consumer demands. And so that's, I think, what's, what's largely driving some of these investments. So just returning back to utilities for a moment, you recently authored a, a paper on best practices for infrastructure deployment, which I found really, um, really interesting. Can you talk about that work, what the team found, what best practices have been recommended, and then how mm -hmm. are the, the SEPA members and others in, in industry responding to that? So, yes, thank you for asking this paper was released in June and was developed over the last two and a half years in large part by our SEPA members who were involved in our electric vehicle working group. And so the, one of the fascinating things about this industry is unlike a lot of other industries, utilities are very open and willing to share what they've learned. 
especially in the electric vehicle space. And we know we're all kind of starting from the same place. It's very early stage for, for many utilities. And so they're willing to, uh, you know, share a lot more information uh, as they're trying to help their peers and other, other uh, utilities across the country. And so this report compiled nearly 70 recommendations for how utilities can more quickly and effectively deploy charging infrastructure. And so it included everything from what type of information utilities should publish for their consumers. Uh, there was some information in there about how to streamline their utility internal processes related to things like energy service requests. And then all the way to how do you provide some level of transparency to your customers and, and maybe your regulators on the efficacy of these charging infrastructure programs. So it kind of includes everything from soup to nuts. And, you know, one of the things that's really challenging from, from my spot working with all these different utilities across the country is that we have 3,300 electric utilities in the U.S. And how quickly we this, see this trans, transformation will vary widely from one place to the next. We know that EVs are not being sold at an equal pace everywhere. So writing content that can be useful in Portland, Maine, and also Portland, Oregon, can be challenging. But we know that eventually that content will be useful for everyone. And I, I think the kinds of information and the feedback that we've been getting is from our utility members is like, wow, this at least a few of these recommendations will be helpful for me today. And, and we know that this will be a really good guide for us in the future also. And and so we see this all as part of a transformation, right? And, and everybody starts from a different place. And so pieces like this, I think, are really critical as, our, as we just continue to gather knowledge and share that more broadly with everybody. So we're all on the same page. So... Last question. Um, so you are in the midst of uh, starting a Women in EVs forum. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So I have been in this industry now for, well, EV specifically for over a dozen years. And, you know, I've noticed a trend that a lot of the people who are buying electric vehicles are, you know, males. And they uh, are really interested in the technology, the performance, and things like that. And then last year, I heard an NPR story that made a comment that women uh, make over 80% of the vehicle purchasing decisions in the U.S. And so I kind of put these two stats together and I said, well, if women are making the majority of the decisions, why aren't we seeing more women buying electric vehicles? And that kind of stuck in my head is like, maybe this is an issue that, that uh, our industry needs to tackle. And so I started doing mm-hmm. some research and um, found a lot of research pointing to the fact that uh, women um, only account for 30% of the EV purchasing to, uh, purchases right now. And that wow. the weak appeal, the weak appeal to women may be a considerable factor in the Tesla sales for most electric vehicles. And hmm. um, there was, yeah, <laughs> uh, there was pretty amazing. Article, yeah, from the marker that got a quote from Tony Passowitz, who's the former CEO of the EV startup Fisker Automotive, 
and also worked with GM. And he said, women are very practical auto consumers and their preferences for SUVs and crossovers was largely based on the functionality of these products. And so attending to female consumers will be vital to the growth of electric vehicles. And looking across what vehicle options are out there, it actually made me ponder this, that we may not be hitting the mark with what we have available to women. And so as Uh an industry, we need to be really laser focused on what is the type of EV product that will will appeal to this broader segment and um, how do we get there and make it easier and accessible for women. So yeah, I'm starting uh, kind of as a passion project, um, this website that I'm planning to launch in the fall, and it will really be helping to demystify electric vehicles for for the segment of the um, car buying group. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I actually, um, you know, I know we've talked talked about this offline, but I, I really can identify with that, you know, as a consumer. I mean, what's sitting in my garage is <laughs> is a crossover, you know, internal combustion engine vehicle. We are a two car um, household, and um, although strangely, I mean. And especially these days, I mean, my husband and I both work at home. I mean, literally the cars, we've actually discussed getting rid of the other car, which is an older SUV that really is, you know, when we had a a hobby farm sort of back in the day in North Dakota, long story. (laughs) And uh, it was very very useful, you know, 10 years ago when we had a hobby farm, but not so much today. So we have, uh, yeah, so we have a, a crossover and I was the big driver. I mean literally, no pun intended, I was the big driver behind that purchase. It's a smaller, it's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a, an, an X3. And I wanted the car because I wanted, you know, we do, we have equipment, you know, it's all the, the, the stuff in life, you know, the groceries, the dog, the sports equipment, the, you know, the so on and so forth. But, you know, we would be in the market for an electric vehicle. And we look at the, look at the lineup right now, the lineup over the last few years, it's like, you know, sorry, I'm not getting on a you know, I'm not doing a leaf. You know, I know you love your leaf, mm-hmm. but you know, like for our for our lifestyle, it doesn't quite. Uh, and what we do, you know, it doesn't quite fit. But I really think, you know, and mm-hmm. I've been telling clients, like, give it like two or three years. You know, when like Volkswagen comes out with the, I think they're now calling it. I've been calling it Crossed, but it's the ID4. When we start seeing mm-hmm. those kinds of like crossovery looking vehicles, I'm really wondering if that's going to be the tipping point because it's what people in this country want to drive. It's what fits their their lifestyle and their and their needs, and there will be a range of them to choose from. But everything you're saying is like you know, yeah, it's so interesting. Is I really think this is where the dealers come in too because I went into my BMW dealer, dealership recently. And there was a um, an i3 there, and I've always liked them. And, and my husband's like, no, you know, I can't get into that. <laughs> I can't. I literally cannot get into that. So you know, I was talking to the to the dealer, and the dealer was like, oh, you don't want that. I mean, so there is really mm-hmm. that situation going on out there. It's interesting because I know a little bit about these vehicles, and it was just completely just disparaging and discouraging, and like you know, wanting to mm-hmm. shuttle me off to another another vehicle. 
So that dynamic is in there is in there too. But I think once people see things that they're really they want to drive, they're used to driving, they see the price tag, they do the numbers on the tax credit, what will be available to them. I mm-hmm. think that's really going to open up the doors. But you're right. I mean, even in that dealer situation, I mean, there was no education. And I knew something. I mean, I don't know what he's telling people that <laughs> what they're telling people who don't know anything about electric vehicles. So there's definitely a, an education gap there, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So so I think utilities and lots of other industry players acknowledge that the dealerships are kind of a barrier as well. So there's a lot of focus by utility education programs on dealer education. The Plug-in America is a really robust EV dealer program and um, utilities are making sure that dealers are aware of the uh, rates that are available to customers so that when customer asks, how much is it going to actually cost me to charge this car, that they're, they actually have some information available for that customer. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think that you brought up a whole bunch of really good points. Um, women <laughs> think about cars in kind of a more practical sense, like how can I, you know, all these different use cases for my car, how can I make sure that this car is going to fit all of them for me? Um, uh-huh, exactly. And and with women are less driven by like the alloy type for your wheels and how big the tires are, no. how, how much force that it has. <laughs> like these are things that, yeah. that really don't like translate. I think for the women's purchasing decision, and they're more like interested. Will this car get me to my children's five different things that I have to do on Saturday? Because they're in all these different sports and activities, and will this car carry all the groceries and all the stuff that I need to take to the beach or to whatever my vacation destination is this year? And so I think that yeah. that sort of information needs to be more accessible. And women also rely heavily on recommendations from their peers. I can think back to every car purchasing decision was largely based on. Do I know someone that owns this car? <laughs> Can I ask oh, them yeah. like, what their experience was? Because you don't want to make $30,000 mistake. That's a huge amount of money. And you don't want to buy the wrong car. And, and you're going to you know, ultimately be really upset about that. So you want to make sure that the car you buy is, is vetted and it's going to be reliable and it's going to do what you need it to do. And I, and I think that's another thing is that maybe women don't, know a lot of other women that own electric vehicles. And so again, I, yeah. I'm hoping that this resource will be helpful for filling in some of those gaps. Yeah. And I think the infrastructure does come back into play because up until now, you know, maybe the last couple of years, I mean, even where I live in Southwest Florida, we do have charging, but they tend to be, you know, if I think about Naples, Florida, or I think about um, like the airport, it's like in like the nether regions of the parking garage. And, you know, if you're a woman coming out from the airport, it's like, mm, yeah, I'm not going to yeah. do that. <laughs> or there are these, yeah. you know, sort of pathetic looking scary parts of, of where you park, like put them in the, in the, you know, and so I think women also very practical about their safety. And so mm-hmm. they're going to say no, but now, you know, I think, I think that's really going to change over the next few years because they will see them, you know, they'll see them at the sheets, they'll see them 
you know, at the shopping centers or places where they they frequent and that they're not these sort of weird looking, scary, lonely, you know, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, uh, chargers that they're, you know, they're nice looking, they're nice faces, they're well lit, they're very, you know, they're, they're thoughtful and aligned, more aligned to where they actually are in life. And I think that's going to change too. And I think that message really has to get out there so that women don't have that sort of lonely, you know, parking garage concept or whatever in their minds that they that they realize that no, this is really this is really changing. Um and and very mm-hmm. easy, you know, if you're out and about, you know, to pop in at the Starbucks or, you know, while you're doing your grocery shopping or, you know, what have you, that that there's charging right. there. It's not so scary. Right. Absolutely. I think there's yeah. a misconception that you know, if you buy an EV, that you're kind of tethered to your house because right. you may or may not want to go too far because then you might get stranded somewhere. So I think making people aware that there are places to charge, that it's not that different of a process than going to a gas station, making it a lot more visible. Uh, you know, there's lots of, of information out there on how to do that. And I think that, um, it, you know, at the end of the day, it just needs to be easy. Right. If you can't uh-huh. talk about, you know, this is a J1771 plug and this is a Chad Mode plug. Oh, and this is a yeah. like, <laughs> like you start talking right. about the standards and people's eyes glaze over. Except if you're yeah. like a really, you know, geek like myself, then that, that's fine. But <laughs> I think that um, right. the industry is just going to continue to evolve and make the technology more accessible. All right. That's the show. Thanks for listening. I want to thank Erica so much for being on the show today. It was a, it was a pleasure to, uh, to talk with you, get your perspective from the utility side of the equation on electric vehicle infrastructure and the market. And very excited about the women in EVs. I think that's really, really going to be very beneficial. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. So if you're looking for more analysis on future fuels issues, head to my website, futurefuelstrategies.com, and sign up for my free biweekly newsletter. Thanks again.